Hey, Super Dave here. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Bleeding Edge Interviews. This time around, I'm going to be talking to a gentleman who is part of a band that is eight years after their first album, just now delivering their second album. And yet somehow, the enthusiasm and momentum that band has doesn't seem to have diminished much in eight years. And this would be Jamie Van Dyke of the band Earthside. Their brand of whether you want to call it progressive, cinematic, post-metal slash rock, whatever, is exceedingly unique and has really captured the imagination of a lot of people and a lot of folks are very excited about it. Matter of fact, these guys are able to, even with the first album, pull up a slew of heavy-hitting guest vocalists and guest performers. So you know something special is going on when people are able to do that kind of thing right out of the gate. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Jamie Van Dyke of Earthside about their latest album, Let the Truth Speak. Well, nice to meet you, Jamie. I, I really thank you for joining me this evening. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we were able to make this work out. Yes, me too. I'm glad to be here, Dave. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm going to start off kind of with the obvious. It's been a minute since the last Earthside <laughs> album. <laughs> it's eight years at this point in time right and what have you guys been up to all that time i was gonna say more like two but if it's been eight so be it uh you know (laughs) um well i think when people hear this album not that it justifies necessarily an eight-year absence but i think people will hear why this isn't your typical uh two to three year record as far as you know all that went into creating it and all all the the collaborations there were to manage um how layered of a record it is and just how many sort of compositional decisions there were to make um so i this was a a pretty significant undertaking um i think that in combination with some of our own um mental health kind of limitations i, I think some of our personal weaknesses kind of really reared their head in making this record as far as whether it be um, perfectionism or sort of paralysis of indecision um, and really agonizing over micro nuances that other people might not even pick up on. So, um, you know, and then there, there were things along the way, like, you know, for the first week of recording guitars and I fracture my wrist. So then we have to go pivot and do something else. Um, were, uh, I didn't fracture my wrist playing guitar. I fractured my right. wrist doing something else, but, um, <laughs> you know, things like that. I, I think the pandemic, while it I'm sure affected everybody, um, right it affected our record from a collaborative standpoint, as far as we had certain vocalists who had, um, so including a couple early significant names who had said they were good to do it and wanted to be on the record and were paired with a song. And then the pandemic hit and they had to move or, you know, they had their own mental health things come up. And just so, right. um, you know, we, I think we had three different vocalists, um, paired with two or three different songs at the um, outside of the pandemic, all of whom then had to renege on that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe they're potential vocalists for future records, but it meant, and you see the number of collaborators we have on this record. um, Clearly we had a lot of spots to fill. So (laughs) now in some cases, it wasn't necessarily necessarily the case that we were going to we initially were going to have multiple vocalists or multiple guests on that the specific track, but it 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 turned that way. Um, yeah. I think a big pivotal moment was um, in I think it was August of 2020, right after all three of these vocalists in the previous three to four months had backed out. Um, you know, it was a very daunting time to feel like man we have this record mostly instrumentally done but you know unlike with the dream and static we only had four songs with guest vocals this one you know more well over half the record we envisioned having vocals and 
with that, you know, came, you know, and we're very picky when it comes to not just the quality of the vocalist, but how well they fit the emotion we're looking to evoke with the song and how their voice pairs with the vocal we've written as far as the register, as far as the timbre of the voice. So um, anyway, I in, in August of 2020, I made a Facebook post on my own Facebook uh, under the name Jamie Earthside. Um, and, you know, one of the good things about being friends with a lot of progressive music fans is that my Facebook friends list is chock full of people who are obsessed with music and obsessed with music discovery. And right. so, you know, in my post, I requested, hey, not like people in Prague necessarily, not the obvious names, you know, you don't need to tell me that Leprous exists. We know, believe it or not, we worked <laughs> with their drummer and toured with them like twice. So when we have the right song to work with Einar, you know, we know to reach out to him. So it's, you know, suggesting, asking for suggestions of vocalists that might not be on our, our radar. Um, and from that post, you know, we discovered a vocalist named Ketra Johnson. Looks like Ketura, but Ketra. We discovered an, a singer named Kritam Adikari. We discovered Gennady Kachenko-Papish, who's, you know, on the song Let the True Speak that we released a few months ago. Thank you for saying and, his name for me so I didn't have to because I'm certain yeah. I would have messed it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, every single person who went to do the React video got it wrong. So I'm going to, I thought I'd even, do, I think on our Instagram, I did it in a story. I did a tutorial on how to pronounce his name. And then I, I asked, I, I, I DM'd it to Gennady and I was like, how did I do? And he was, he was impressed. So <laughs> I did pretty well, pretty well for an American. So, um, nice. I think I pronounced his name better than the, when he was on Britain's Got Talent the uh oh. people who had like you know the hosts of the show who had like you know prided themselves on learning to pronounce his name they said his name and then he's like yes i got it and i'm like you know i think i actually pronounced his name like <laughs> 10 times better than you did so you, you 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 had a false declaration of victory but i think mine is actually accurate but um yeah and then aj channer of fire from the gods we knew him or we knew of fire from the gods but the, with the post I made, a few people commented him as a recommendation, and it reminded us, oh, you know, that that could actually be cool. Let, let's see if we can get in touch with him. So he wouldn't have been, on, I think, on our radar without that kind of nudge from people um, reminding us, like, hey, you know, what about him? So, yeah, I mean, really, ultimately, probably, you know, half the songs on the album have a collaborator that came out of that Facebook post. Wow. So that was That's a amazing. an important moment in being able to move the album forward um, at a time when it looked like, you know, you know, we were very um, discouraged by where, you know, where we felt like we were at at that point when we just yeah. knew we, we had, we were striking out with collaborators either with them saying no or saying yes and then having to back out we we knew we had a lot of work on our hands to get from where we were at that point to where we wanted it to be wow and that you anticipated a couple of my questions right there in that one answer that's impressive <laughs> well, um, you, i never want to guess. unpack in that one in that yeah. one question so it gets there <laughs> well and and i and i guess i imagine that somewhere in the midst of all that stuff like i i can't imagine you guys didn't start to feel a bit snake bitten and and, and perhaps maybe want to you know curse the gods or whatever in the midst <laughs> of everything i like that that sounds like that must have been exceedingly frustrating dealing with all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said to our drummer, Ben, you know, within the first handful of months of setting out to do this record and realizing we had bit off way more than we thought. Because mm. actually, when we started this record, we're like, you know, we can just self-produce this record. It'll, it'll be faster. <laughs> and then we very quickly were like, oh, yeah, that that is... That is not true. <laughs> we are we are not the people to do that with this record. This, this is more ambitious than our Dream and Static album, and and on top of that, we are um, yeah we are undermanned to to take this on by ourselves. Mm. Um, so, um, but yeah, as, as far as oh, this is where I was going with that. So in in 2018, um, 
I, I remember saying to Ben several months into making this record, I was like, you know, Ben, and we'd been, you know, we'd been writing it for well yeah. over a year, a couple of years, and we were several months into recording it. And I said to Ben, you know, we could just scrap this record and start a new record from scratch. And I promise you, we'd finish it faster than we'd finish this record. And I was almost pleading with Ben to like, can we just table this record? Like this feels like a fifth band's fifth album. It doesn't feel like a band's second album. Can we, <laughs> can we just like put this on the shelf for a little and like actually make a record that makes sense to make with our current means and, and one that we could actually, you know, yes, we'd be starting, um, you know, from scratch mm. more than, you know, two years after Dream and Static's release. But, you know, it feels like we're not even close to finishing this one. And given it, we are, are releasing this one, you know, five and a half years after I made that claim or, and finished it about five years after I first said that, I do think I was probably right that if that we, we might've been better served professionally to table that record and, and, and try to create something that wasn't, I don't want to say as ambitious, but was ambitious in a way that we were more positioned to manage. Right. Um, and, but I think we were so emotionally attached to certain things in this record that one, we weren't going to let go of it. And then two, within the, the, creation of the record there were so many things we were attached to that um therefore it was it was difficult to let go of individuals decisions yeah. um in making it okay so that sounds like what you guys describe on the website is the the idealistic ambition and absurd commitment <laughs> driving <laughs> yeah. you through all of that i think that that's accurate um and and an attachment to exactly how we wanted it. You know, as much as a dream and static was generally well received, there were things that for us weren't, they didn't sound exactly how we wanted them to. They didn't come out exactly how we had envisioned them coming out. So there was this feeling of close, but no cigar that was kind of following us. And so with this record, it wasn't about making it more perfect from the standpoint of we felt like we had to, live up to a dream and static from a fan perspective. It was more for ourselves. There were a few things we just didn't quite get how we wanted them. Mm. And we weren't going to be able to move on from this record unless we got those things the way we wanted them on this album. And the good news is at least in taking eight years to do it, we did that. So I, <laughs> I think we, you know, we got more the drum sound we wanted um, that, you know, sort of fit that suited the song. Well, we got more, you know, maybe like a heavier rhythm guitar sound we wanted in certain songs that there were certain things that were like the sound of our dreams. We, we finally got it on, on this record. Um, so I, I get, I think the other good news is that means now after eight years of this record's release, um, or, you know, eight years between releases, I think we're now better situated, um, to, to, set out to make our third record whenever that time comes it's weird to be talking about making the third record when you haven't you're still a few days away from releasing the second <laughs> though i guess when this airs depending yeah. on the medium in which it airs maybe it will have already uh been released at that point but um yeah that i do think we'll be able to let go of some things we didn't let go of on this record <laughs> and that we can set out to make an am album that is ambitious but um from a lifestyle standpoint is more within our day to day, you know, what we can take on and, and learning from this process of to really be honest with ourselves before we set out to make our next record. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we'll have that same feeling of, Oh, we didn't quite get that on this last record. So we got to chase it on this next one. I think the thing we're chasing on this next one is, manageability when we go to do the third record so but still okay. finding to, a way to make it creatively engaging and interesting so people yeah. you know first and foremost ourselves don't feel it as a come down from this record right which so far from what i'm hearing sounds like that will be a challenge you guys are setting <laughs> the bar high this time around 
given the length of time between those albums, one, I, I can I can look back and it looks like you guys really probably were feeling a good sense of momentum after a dream and static. And, you know, you were touring with some big names, you know, it's certainly in the, in the world of, in the progress sphere, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, and with now eight years later, I don't know, to me, what I see and feel suggests, interestingly enough, despite the years, you guys have really not lost momentum. Matter of fact, it seems like people have actually actually been anticipating. It's almost like you've been like this quiet cult kind of band <laughs> that all the prognogans out there were really into. And now it's like there's this chatter. And, you know, there's a friend of mine who just discovered you guys recently. And when he comments back in the group chat, it was hit him like hearing images and words by Dream Theater for the first time. Like I haven't heard him get that excited about something in a while. And another friend, you know, as soon as the tickets announced on sale, it's it's not a message to the group. Hey, Caligula's horse and Earthside tickets on sale. It's Earthside tickets on sale. <laughs> like you guys are getting mm -hmm. attention in that group as almost the headliner. And then I have already seen some online reactions. At least one of them talking about the title track. You know, let let the truth speak uh, as like one of his choices so far for song of the year. So I, I, I'm curious what you guys are perceiving on your end and what it feels like to be getting this kind of feedback. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a relief because I think there was a real feeling. I know when, when we were at those moments of being most stuck with this record, yeah. with let the truth speak, there was, I definitely had some existential feelings of my life is passing me by. Our lives are passing us by. We missed the boat. We missed the opportunity. We had all this momentum. People are going to forget us or they're going to kind of move on from us. And I, and I think there has been some of that. So those feelings aren't completely um, invalid or, you know, I, you saying that while reassuring hasn't, you know, I know, I still know if I'm being honest with myself, like, yeah, but we, we, we missed some opportunities there. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I think when we released the song, Let the Truth Speak, especially, and I think it helps that Daniel Tompkins was on that song because a lot yeah. of the fans we had made from the Dream and Static album were Tesseract fans that really liked the song of Dream and Static or Sky Harbor fans that really liked the other, other damn projects, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that really fell in love with the, the song of Dream and Static. And I think some of them because that was their one song of connection, they may have been a bit more dormant, but because our song to reawaken them had Dan on it, um, that helped sort of re-engage them quickly. Um, so I think that was part of it. Um, and also I, I still think there's more of them to engage because <laughs> our timing and we are we're like 95% with this. Whenever we release a song with a guest vocalist, like almost guaranteed that band has an album coming out at the same time. So we, yeah. So like when we went to release the song, let the truth speak, Tesseract was on the verge of releasing an album and announcing their game. And then their subsequent tour. So Dan's actually barely gotten even post about his collaboration with us still because of what Tesseract's had going on. So, right. um, and on, on the Dream and Static album, you know, the three name vocalists were Dan, Lejean, and Bjorn. The album came out fall of 2015. Guess what? Soilwork, Seven Dust, and Tesseract all released albums in fall of 2015. And we had recorded these vocalists in the years, couple of years leading up to it. So it was just total coincidence that it worked out that way. Yeah. But it did. So actually releasing the single with AJ from Fire from the Gods, it's the first time we've released a song with a vocalist where he didn't his band didn't have an album coming out at the same time so we finally have broken the uh our, our bad reputation for uh for for doing that uh, oh and, and even when we were, came back with all we knew and ever loved um with board colstaff from leprous on drums um <clears throat> yeah leprous was coming out with aphelion basically at the yeah. same time so again it was another <laughs> not even a vocalist it's a, you know a guest where 
we just timed it so perfect. You'd almost think we were doing it intentionally, but it's the exact opposite of what we would want to do. It's like, yeah, let's ride each of these artists' coattails of like, oh, there people are going to be buzzing about their new album. Let's strategically, uh, you know, piggyback on that. But it definitely actually, you know, works. Generally, I think works against us because then those people are promotionally engaged and promoting their own projects. So, um, yeah. It's nice when things work out like that once in a while, right? Yeah. We we finally have it. Yeah. Yeah. Can't always be snake bit. (laughs) Damn it. Which is, and it's interesting to think about, like you guys, I mean, I don't know any of your ages, but you're, you are clearly to my eye young. And certainly eight years ago, you were even younger. And just, I'm impressed with a band with one and now a second album soon under their belt with the pull uh, of to get that kind of talent involved in their music. And it's like, wow, I, I, how did you guys pull these heavyweights into what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, so, and this album I think was different from the first a little bit in the sense that, um, you know, with the dream and static, we really had no reputation and no history. Um, so it was, you know, cold emailing these people and emailing their managers. And, you know, for every one we've gotten, we've, you know, there are strikeouts people don't know about. Mm. Um, and so, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is also these people, while they get emailed a lot about certain things, and I think it's becoming more and more the case that now people do reach out about collaborations. But when, you know, when a dream and static was being created you know 10 years ago features and rock and metal really weren't the norm it was much more of a hip-hop thing electronic music thing so you know there weren't that many bands probably contacting these people asking them to feature on songs yeah um and then on you know on this on this newer record dan we already had the relationship with from a dream and static and so you know the only sort of name vocalist that we didn't have a pre-existing relationship with who was on this record from the rock and metal world was aj from fire from the gods you know gennady has a is a, a name in the world music world and and sort of in the got talent circuit larry bragg is a name in the funk and soul worlds um but yeah i think i would say on this on let the truth speak we were less riding the coattails of people's names and more now we get to feel like, you know, because we were able to kick the door open, we now feel like we get to elevate talent and sort of bring people's, mm-hmm. um, you know, attention and, and use our visibility to get ears on people like Ketra, like Free Tom, and yeah, um, and so that's it's a it's a good feeling to feel like we're we're now paying it forward in that way, um, you know, on a dream and static. I think with Dan, it was. He had a, a SoundCloud account that was just his individual SoundCloud account, and you could just we just sent him a message with our own SoundCloud link to a demo of the song "A Dream and Static," and that's how that happened. And um, yeah, with with Bjorn, we were working with the same pro- Swedish production team. You know, they were in the studio with Jens, and we were working with David Castillo and Jens. So there was a Jens Bogren. So. Um, yeah, with Lejean, it was. I had been Facebook friends with the guitarist of one of the guitarists of Seven Dust, John Connolly, for a long time. And when I sent John a direct message on Facebook at the time, you know, he just gave me Lejean's email. So that's you know, so cool. it's, I mean, is it, it's and again, I think now with the it being a different era and the you know this was all now a decade ago more so. I think with features now being more prevalent, I mean, for a while, for a couple of years there, there was that site featured X. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there was a site where you could hire rock and metal sort of vocalists and solo artists for, for guest features. I don't think the site exists anymore, but a lot of people, a lot of prominent rock and metal people were on that. So I do think um, now it's people are more thinking to ask people. So we kind of got out ahead of it. (laughs) We, we were messaging people when it was a more unique thing to do that. And now I would think it's a more saturated thing where you'd be 
competing against more people, trying to get in touch with people to feature yeah. on stuff. Um, so luckily, I think we're becoming less and less dependent on the notoriety and visibility of the featured guests. And right. um, still very dependent on, potentially more and more dependent on having a variety of featured guests. But yeah. they're, I think we're trying to make those relationships happen more and more organically. Um, and, you know, in through making this record, we we have relationships with people also who didn't end up on this record, but we've kind of flagged as people for, for future and have began, begun conversations with. Right. So not saying that there's a song for them in mind, but there's at least, if we have that right song or if we do have that direction in future, we have a well of people um, coming out of that Facebook post I alluded to earlier that, <laughs> you know, we we have a, a pretty good well of vocalists whose whose talents we admire, and that we and at least with some of them have some baseline relationship right. with at this point. Very cool. Yeah, I, I just looking through the list of people on this album, I just was amazed, really, in many ways, of the variety. When you guys call it an international affair, you're not kidding. Mm-hmm. Like you're all over the place, and that is just to me really very cool and it and it's also and we'll circle back to this because i'm about to put a label on you guys when we start talking about progressive rock progressive metal the prog world and you know i recent conversations just the whole idea that there's this so much of this interconnecting tissue among the bands and artists where there's all these collaborations going on like in the seventies, I always saw it as one person was always leaving this band to go to another band and somebody else left that band to go to this band. And it always seemed like they, people were fighting and then just joining up with others. These days, it seems like there's just this big group of, of collaborative people just hanging out and doing stuff. Hey, let's go do something now. Let's go do something else. And, and you guys are doing that and reaching outside of the typical circles that you might see, you know, like, Daniel fits in. Okay, yeah, he's very much in that kind of proggy world, but Lejean is not, or or Ketera is not, as I understand. Although I don't know her well yet, had to Google the name. I'll, I'll admit, <laughs> AJ is not. You know, and and so I, I, to me, the more those circles expand, I think the better it is for, I mean, music as a whole, but the genre in particular. Yeah, and I, and I think when you talk about Dan having being from that progressive world. You know, one of the things we felt this time, I think more so than on the first album, is if we were going to work with Dan again, one, we wanted it to be very different from the song of Dream and Static, but two, we wanted it to feel even more clearly different from anything you could hear him doing in Tesseract from a musical standpoint. So I think, you know, between having those orchestral strings elements and let the true in the song let the truth speak that were were not present on the song of Dream and Static are generally are not part of tesseract sound um and then also you know adding in gennady's vocals you know it was an opportunity to create a very different sound world um and context for dan's voice to live in um than uh yeah in his other projects and also from when we worked with him the first time um yeah and i and i think it's it was definitely an active you know an intentional choice to largely reach outside of the progressive music world for our collaborations um and to the extent that they're in the world again have it really be meaningfully different from what they've done in their own projects you know yeah if it's just if we just have like a regular prog song and we get a prog vocalist who's in a similar sounding prog band it's like all right well they could just do that in their own band so i i think in, in terms of creating some sort of new experience, both creatively for ourselves, creatively for them, and for the listener, generally pulling from outside that world or within the world in a very different way from how they're used in their own band, I think is, yeah, it's more inspiring for, yeah. for everyone involved. Yeah, I, I love that cross-pollination because to me that's that's honestly what it means to be progressive in my mind is, is stretching those boundaries and pulling outside of the comfort zone. So I, the fact that they're willing to do that and you're willing to do that is that makes everybody a bit progressive. <laughs> and um, I think when you talk about the word progressive, I think something that we yeah. really, really focus on a lot is 
we think about progressive as an adjective more than as a genre because I, yeah. I think it, at this point, and I think it's been this way for a while. Our view is there's there's almost two separate genres. There's prog, which are bands that sound inspired by other prog bands that have the prog sound. So like bands where you think their musical ancestors are Yes, Rush, King Crimson, Pink Floyd, you know, newer Dream Theater. So, and I think there are other bands that are more progressive in that they don't necessarily feel like they're inspired primarily by the sound of those bands so much as they have the the modern day equivalent of the ethos of those bands of combining all these different influences from, you know, rock and non-rock genres of their their era so we feel like we're more the latter of those two that we're you know for the most part our biggest influences aren't necessarily classic prog bands they're you know a mix of world music here um film score here new metal and alt metal there you know so you know new metal kids with classical backgrounds and funk and jazz and you combine all that and it's like okay that creates a progressive sound rather than you know our favorite bands are and then you just list all the the famous prog bands and i I think there are modern prog bands where it does feel more like they're the next that they were clearly influenced by their prog ancestors and they're not necessarily as progressive so much as they're of the prog sound and I, i think those are those are two different things. Yeah. And, and I think they result the, what the sound you get from a result process wise or how that ins- inspiration influence works. I feel like you can really hear the difference as far as when, when a band is prog by virtue of their, their great, their biggest influences all being prog bands. And so therefore you have this prog sound versus yeah. a band where most of their biggest influences yeah, are not from the prog genre, but when you combine them, it creates a progressive sound. Right. It's a cool way of defining it. Actually, I've, I've heard that people talk about the differentiation between progressive and prog. You're the first one I've heard define it. <laughs> so clearly, at least. So yeah. it's very handy to have that definition. Now I will put that in my brain. So, I don't know if it's formal. It's just, I mean, it's how we think of it. It's, the, it's how my bandmates think of it, too. I, so. It works. You've come up, you're the first one I've heard come up with it. So <laughs> right, I, it's that. credited to you now at this point in time. <laughs> you were the footnote in the, in the bottom there. Um, so, I mean, you kind of answered one of the questions I was in my mind is that, you know, I go online, look at you guys and look up Earthside and, and you see these classifications of progressive metal and post-rock and, and cinematic rock all of which I think match pretty accurately in one way or another. So what I hear is that for you, it's eh, we're not so hip to the labels and that mm-hmm. your, your background is not as you shared here. And as you shared with me in setting this up, you know, would include some things that people might be surprised to hear about such as new metal, <laughs> you know, and, and some of that more prog adjacent stuff, you know, the, um, and you mentioned the funk and all that. So I'm kind of curious what you think fans would be surprised to hear you've been listening to. Me personally or, or my bandmates? Uh, yeah, you, them, all of so, you. <laughs> <clears throat> well, so, I mean, you know, I think Frank has some really surprising, um, you know, roots as far as, you know, for, from his keyboard playing standpoint, I think he would say he's more influenced by like the beats of gangster rap than he mm-hmm. is by prog keyboardist yeah. you know like like for instance like a, a gangster rap uh group like three six mafia you know <laughs> with some ignorant lyrics uh <laughs> yeah. the uh but like the you know the music can be pretty epic there's a lot of yeah. orchestral elements very uh intense aggressive bass and um yeah. low end and so sonically i think there's more that we take from that in some cases than we do from some of the bigger Frog names. Um, Frank also is really into, um, you know, new age music like Yanni. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is that surprising, but like more trip hoppy artists like Bjork and Massive Attack and Portishead. I think, you know, 
that's kind of a mood and atmosphere that I think we become more and more attracted to. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we, the new metal stuff. I mean, I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of progressive bands probably have a soft spot for new metal. If they're, if they're in our age bracket, I think a lot right. of the, the more quote unquote gent bands yeah. have a new metal soft spot. Um, and I mean, I think, I think that music has surprisingly aged well. I think it, it was, it was very cool. Then it was very uncool. And now it's kind of come around to be cool again. Um, yeah. So that's when, you know, yeah. you're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the music that, that, uh, that right after its heyday was like completely the, the, you know, the thing to hate on is right. now, uh, yeah. Come around is, and now has, has been redeemed in the <laughs> eyes of the new generation. So. Indeed. Everybody's got their sauce. But hey, it, everything. Hey, I am. I grew up huge Rush fan. That was always for me the band, and I took a lot of crap for it because they were not pop, so they weren't popular. They weren't classic rock, so the classic rock heads would dump on them. <laughs> and then next thing you know, oh look, you know, for what it's worth, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh look, I love you, man. Is a movie. Oh look. yeah, I was. I was just gonna say yeah, that I, you didn't. That they are some of the they're one of the biggest bands ever at this point in time and they are revered and I can finally go see my life was not wasted. I was right all along. See, I'm not old enough to remember an era where people would have given crap for, for being a rush fan as far, like from the moment, you know, I emerged from the womb. It was cool to like rush. So, uh, good for you. You missed a dark time. My friend, (laughs) (laughs) those were dark ages. (laughs) So part of your duties, I think with the band you've been described, I know you're, guitar some keyboards some vocals but you've been named as the band's orchestrator which i take it to mean of course the the one who handles orchestral arrangements and things like that if i'm not mistaken um shoot which one was it a dream now oh there we go yeah. mom and tally was your work i blanked on the title all of a sudden yeah. all i could think was lejean i'm like okay <laughs> that's not the title dave um so i'm curious you know does that how does that impact your approach to composing when you're doing it with the intent that this is going to be part of a very heavy kind of rock song i mean it depends on the song like for example when mob mentality was unique in that that song was really built around the orchestra um i mean that but the start of that one was it was my senior thesis for college my my sort of my composition project and my professors really wanted to make sure that if i was going to do something with rock and metal that i didn't make the orchestra sort of playing second fiddle for uh i guess no pun intended because uh violins and fiddles are very different when you talk about (laughs) this genre but um yeah i think the orchestra was really front and center in mob mentality where the rock band almost you know, it was subservient to the orchestra in some ways. Um, with the orchestra, orchestral songs on the True Speak album, it's, you know, with, with the Dream and Static album, the orchestra was almost like solely almost on mob mentality. And then the rest of the album was pretty minimal in its orchestration. There's a little bit on Contemplation, the Beautiful, Entering the Light was a, more of a film score song. But, um, you know, the rest of the record, I don't think even had hardly a drop of orchestra at all um on let the truth speak you know well over half the record has some sort of either orchestral instrumentation or some other type of instrumentation like well you know the lesser evil has the the horns instrumentation sort of the the funk band um so with the horn section so when you add that in you know well over half the let truth speak record has something beyond extra rock band you know outside of the sort of rock band instrumentation um to to add to sort of the the sonic palette um as far as your your question trying to get back to as far as you know how the how the conception goes as a composer um Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to to say because it really is different from song to song. Like the song "Let the Truth Speak," we, I we wrote so much of that instrumentally before we even 
played around with the idea of, hmm, what about playing around with strings on that, you know? <laughs> so, and I think, you know, this, between adding strings and adding Gennady's improvised vocals to it, the song just became a whole different animal. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad we did, because I, I think it that gave the song a certain gravitas and worldliness yeah. that it, and a, just overall ethos and mood that it, it would not have had without those decisions. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I feel like I'm answering a very general question very generally. <laughs> so if you have a more specific question, I could probably answer it more specifically, but just partly because there's each song, right. When there's an orchestral element to it is it's a different process and a different story of how right. it got there. Yeah. And then that makes sense. You know, that the genesis of the song is going to dictate a lot of how it's done. I just, it fascinates me to think, you know, like there's people out there that are composing orchestral music, you know, a lot of them for soundtracks these days. And then of course there's people making rock and metal music. And I picture those processes being a bit different and yet probably in the root, largely the same. But at the same time, I guess I wonder, it's like, mm -hmm. is, there, is that really make a, is that really a challenge to figure out, okay, I've got this nice orchestral arrangement, but now I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to layer the guitar and the bass and all that without screwing up this orchestral arrangement I put together or whether it all just grew organically together in many ways and, and everything is just another part of the orchestra. Yeah. I mean, it's when I, I did during the pandemic, I did a, a workshop uh, through NYU. It was supposed to be in person, but then the pandemic hit and ended up being over zoom. So there was a workshop of music for film and then scoring music for film. And then there was another workshop that was uh, music for video games. And during the workshop of you know music for video games, the, the guest composer, I think his name's Tom Salta. He was um, involved with the Halo soundtracks. Now I'm gonna, I don't want to besmirch his reputation by <laughs> getting it wrong. Let's see. It's Tom Salta. <laughs> Um, this is good podcasting me just making sure i have this right okay yeah i have this right he's yeah the halo soundtracks is his his bread and butter um so yeah one of the things he said was um you know figure out who's in the band and not like who the people are but it's a figure of speech more like when you set out to compose a soundtrack what is the sort of box of instruments you have available to you and and i think in different cases when that decision is sort of committed to can either be at the very beginning where it's like i want to write a song with these instruments and see what i come up with versus okay my bandmates and i jammed in a rehearsal and with the parts that we created you know the the riff is there the atmosphere is there but you know there really isn't a lot of melodic content or you know we have this one melody but there's all the space for this counter melody so because half of Earthside songs it's roughly half and half about half are composed where we're just jamming in rehearsal and right. just kind of what happens happens one of us might have an initial idea we build it around sometimes not even sometimes just we start playing and one of us cues up a sound another one you know i <laughs> I dial up a guitar patch on the Axe Effects, and our keyboardist, you know, Frank goes to some sound on his Yamaha synth, or Roland synth, and or Ben has a drum beat. But like, it, yeah. some of it can be just very spontaneous, and we just start going and seeing what happens. Um, so, when that's the case, you know, the or, anything that happens orchestrally or vocally is, you know, comes after that initial writing process because. None of us are singing in that moment. None of us are scoring in an orchestra. We got an instrument in hand. We're writing the part we're going to be playing. And so it's when we're then listening to sort of in the demoing phase and the pre-production phase, listening back to what we've created, what would elevate that sort of, you know, bare bones nucleus we have so far yeah. versus, you know, some of our songs, you know, Mob Mentality on the first album, um, on this, I'll let the truth speak song that people i guess will have heard by the time this is aired uh tyranny 
um, songs like Denial's Aria, but what if we're wrong? So none of those songs are released at the time of this podcast uh, being uh, recorded. But, um, you know, those are all songs where they were conceived of by an individual person, primarily, I guess, all all the songs I just named are my songs. And so therefore, I'm working in Logic Pro. And just as easily as I have access to my guitar, I can grab it and record it. Probably even more easily, I can dial up a violin patch and start scoring strings. So that process aspect of it just being one person and not having, you know, coming out of a jam session, the orchestra kind of works its way into the process earlier when it starts off in the box as one person sort of conceiving of kind of with hearing it in, in his head and just imagining what it's going to sound like ultimately. I mean, another one that is released, All We Knew and Ever Loved, that was Frank's Baby. And I mean, that song is so built around, um, well, not necessarily orchestra, but pipe organ, which is a yeah. sort of cinematic instrument in this case, and and then the brass. Um, so, you know, he's working with, and starting to write that, he's building it around a pipe organ, you know, keyboard patch on his computer and a brass, you know, software instrument. And we then went on to record those with real brass and real organ. But as far as his writing, those were two, you know, really key ingredients very early on um, where and, you know, writing the song around those. Whereas, yeah, with Let the Truth Speak the song, I don't think in any part the song was written around the strings. Everything foundationally was already there from us having jammed on it in practice. That was one of those songs where we jammed on it in rehearsal as this sort of just bass, guitar, drums, and keyboards jam, and then just so many more things ultimately were added to it to make right. it what it became. Nice. Fascinating. And it does remind me, that's at least one huge difference between a lot of rock music and a lot of orchestral music. I am pretty certain anybody that works in that field can fact check me on this. I'm betting most orchestral compositions don't come out of jams. <laughs> it's true yeah i think uh i don't think they originate in improvisational <laughs> get-togethers with the band <laughs> yeah considering with an orchestra section if you have like violin one is like you know maybe 10 12 people on violin one i doubt all 12 of those people just thought at the same time i'm gonna play this <laughs> melody you know so um yeah you, just how the, the tradition and how it's performed how coordinated every person's part has to right. be with an orchestral arrangement especially when you have multiple people on the same part, it's just such a different process from, all right, we got a guitar part, a bass part and a drum part. And we're just trying to kind of feed off each other organically in the moment and hope we're reading each other. Right. And, you know, when we don't, we can fix it in the, you know, pre-production or demo or just run it again. But yeah, it it is totally different process wise for sure. Nice. And, that leads me to two thoughts. No, one being that if anybody anywhere wants to question whether or not orchestral music can easily lend itself to metal, go on YouTube and find the metal version of the Godzilla theme by Akira Ifukubi. I think I pronounced that correctly. I'm, I'm curious if I remembered the name correctly because I didn't look that up just now. Hmm. And my memory is spotty at best. But uh, the original Godzilla March, there's a guy out there that does a metal version of that. That song was made <laughs> to be metal. <laughs> was was the name you just gave the composer of the Godzilla soundtrack or the person who yeah. did the metal version? That's the- no, that, that's the original composer, uh, Akira okay. Fukubi, I believe it is. Somebody somewhere will check me, I'm sure. We'll look for it in the comments. <laughs> I met a film composer named Akira. I don't think oh, that well. person did the Godzilla soundtrack, but if they did, probably they not. Very- I'm, fairly well, I'm fairly certain he's deceased. Yeah. Okay. I was so, going to say, if he did, he's really humble. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't left that part out. Or he just assumed I knew. And was like, yeah, right. How do you not know I'm the guy who did Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> and the other thought I have is, so in my mind then, presenting your music live presents some challenges with all that orchestral arrangement and things like that. Because I, I feel pretty certain you're not touring with an orchestra. Yeah. And it's a bit of an exaggeration for me to say it, but I know where you'll be playing in Philly, where I'll be seeing you. And that place is kind of, you know, like you can have an, you can have an orchestra or you can have an audience, but you can't have both. <laughs> and and you, you add on top of that, our, our guest vocalist model, where there's pretty much yeah. for every song, a different vocalist. There's now, a, now there's a couple of repeats, uh, yeah. either, you know, a couple of people who sing 
on multiple songs on Let the Truth Speak, and then Dan, who's who sings on both albums. But um, yeah, our our model does not lend itself perfectly to the touring in clubs model between the number of people that would be required to perform it all live. Right. And, you know, because the vocalists are all so different from each other, it would be very hard to find that one vocalist who would be able to represent, you know, more than a couple songs live vocally, you know, to tour with a live vocalist. So, um, both on the vocal front and the ensemble front, uh, we are not necessarily ideally suited to have the everything is live in front of you experience on the club tour circuit. I think at some point we want to build to having that, you know, really epic show or a, a couple epic shows where we, Maybe do a one-off in New York City, or you know, one show in LA, one in New York City, one in London, or right. you know, maybe it, we we perform it somewhere that's not as obvious as those. But yeah. with um, you know, whether it's a full orchestra or at least a significant subset of orchestral instruments uh, represented, you know, multiple of the vocalists who maybe not all of them, but some, yeah. you know, a, a cast of the vocalists who were you know on the two records. And and getting to have that really special live show experience that is right. um, kind of the ultimate version of how these records would be performed, um, and you know, in the meantime, finding ways to make our live show have that balance of having that live energy of what's happening in front of you and what represents compositionally what you're hearing on the record and does that faithfully. Um, And I think for different members of the audience, for different people who come see us, what that ratio is, people will have different tastes on what they feel like would be uh, the optimal iteration of an Earthside live show on the club circuit. Um, So yeah, I don't. I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I think we've definitely, in, you know, very actively made the decision to prioritize what makes the most interesting creative experience and the most interesting and sonically rich and diverse album. Um, you know, at, therefore, at the expense of what is convenient for the live club um, yeah. club tour, and you know whether or not you know when I talk about what would make our third record, a, a more livable situation. You know, one of the consider considerations I think is going to be when we go to write and record our third album is, Hey, we want to make, we want to do this in a way that's, I don't want to say easier to create, to re- replicate live, but is you can replicate it live within our means, mm-hmm. you know, more readily in a way that, um, yeah, feels more yeah. for the, the the person for the concert goer like they're getting a, a fully live experience in front of them. How important is that to us? You know, but in what are we going to have to forego to do that? And then will people? You know, there's many people who right. there's so many bands you can see live where it's generally they are the band, and that's it's the four of them, and then it's the four right. of them on stage, and it's awesome. But I think they're therefore maybe they have limitations of what they can do on record that we haven't given ourselves. So it's a question of, you know, if do we want to have a record where we make it more like something you can really just do verbatim live or pretty darn close to it, or, you know, do we stick to maybe in a different way, but the priority is whatever, we can do creatively and whatever we feel inspired to do, we'll figure out how to deal with it live later. Right. Not our problem right now. It's, we're just going to do what yeah. you know, makes the create inspiring creative recording we want. And so, yeah, very much on the first two albums, that's, that's how we've, we've operated and yeah. whether we will continue to, I, you know, it's too early to say, but it, it is <laughs> definitely, it is definitely a thought. Yeah. 
hey, for what it's worth, I've seen Rush perform ta- Time Stand Still many times. Never once did I see Amy Mann on stage with him, but I heard her voice every time. So, you know, <laughs> did they, they have, try to be true to what you recorded. Did they have video of her or would it just be coming out of the speakers? Uh, usually there would be, yeah, her face would appear briefly on the big screen in back of them. So we get that, but. Oh, just like a photograph or would you see her singing? Yeah, I think it was a video clip. Okay. As I recall. Yeah, we got yeah. that. She at least did that. <laughs> Why right. she couldn't come along, I don't know. <laughs> Too busy. Might have had her own tour she was doing. Might right. have had her own life she was living. So Damn it, Amy. Carve <laughs> some time out for Rush, would you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway. and, and while you're at it, Neil, come back from the dead and get on stage because you need to do this right. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Yes. Yes, please. <laughs> on the upside, I'll see Getty tomorrow night. So <laughs> <laughs> that'll right be on. fun. But hey, Jamie, I, I, it's been a blast chatting with you, man. I, I really dug Absolutely. getting into this and I, I love hearing about the creative process and all that stuff going on with Earthside, you know, and it's, it's, oh, it's always cool for me to, to talk with the people behind the music that's coming out there. So it's, I thank you very much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. So you're uniquely positioned to get to do it. So, you know, I, I don't know if did we, did we cross off all your curiosities in my rambling? And <laughs> I, it seems like, as you said, when you asked a question, I, I, I hit three or four in one of them, yeah. but, uh, so did, did we did we turn over every stone you had? I think you covered bases very well, sir. Okay, good, good. You did, good. You did a great job there. Of that. <laughs> got, at least for me, you know, I, I sometimes I forget to ask a few things. I'll think of them later. I'll email you or something. <laughs> yeah, if you have any unsatiated curiosities, I'll be happy to come back and talk again. So Very cool. Be happy to have you back. And the album comes out Friday, November 17th. Yep. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly when I'll have this posted. It might be right before that or right after it. We'll see how the next couple of days go. And then the tour begins February 1st, actually, right here in the Philadelphia. I think there's one date before that, January 31st in D.C. There's one before that? Oh, got it. I even I, checked your website ahead of time, and I got it I wrong. Think, I think there is a January 31st date in D.C. That's a good thing. It means, you know, anything that went wrong that first show, if it, right. if it did, you know, then you get to see us having, you know, fix the kinks on show number two so excellent yep you guys out with caligula's horse who i think they've got an album out finally you didn't have any of them on your uh on they, re- they, they released a new single a couple days ago and announced i think an album coming out january 26th so their album comes out days before the tour starts good timing on their part yeah <laughs> all right so we'll see you both then. Thank you very much. Best wishes with the album. I hope it's as big as at least as the last album. I'm sure I get the feeling it's going to be bigger for you guys. I do feel oh. that sense of momentum behind this. Uh, so I think you're going to do well. And we I have so. a very strong suspicion it's going to be well received critically too. So good luck with that. Good luck with the tour and everything. I hope it's great. Thank you, Dave. And we, we look forward to meeting you out there and uh, replacing the audience with the full orchestra in Philly. You'll be the one in the <laughs> audience there. There you go. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Have a good, a good one. Hey, what a really cool and interesting dude Jamie is. I really enjoyed that conversation. It was really a good time. Uh, I love digging into his brain about what's been driving Earthside and what's been motivating them over these years as they've worked on this album, making it exactly what they want to be. Honestly, it's a testament, I think, to their dedication and their commitment to quality that, that they put that much time and effort into it. And I know it wasn't all about their effort and, and work that stretched this out a bit other extenuating circumstances but I also think it's a testament to what they're doing, the fact that they can pull in all these outside performers, all this other talent to work on this music with them I think it says a lot so I want to thank you once again Jamie for your time and talking to me, I appreciate you sitting down with me and I want to wish you and the rest of Earthside the best of luck with the album and with the tour I honestly expect it's going to do really well for you at this point in time because I can feel the, the buzz that's out there. And I hope it turns out to be exactly that and exactly what you want to be. I wanted to justify all the work and effort you guys put into the album. So thank you once again for joining me. Best wishes to all of you. Don't forget, the new album comes out. Let the Truth Speak. That will be available beginning November 17th. Rush right out and get it. It's sounding excellent so far. Thank you to all of you listening out there. Once again, appreciate your time. If you want to search me out on the social media, you can find me on all the big ones, Facebook, Instagram, the artist formerly known as Twitter. 
Now also, if you enjoy progressive rock and metal, which you probably do because you're here, go to Live 365 and find my channel, The Expanse, and you can find all the prog rock and metal you can handle all day, all night. If you want to check out some of the video stuff I'm doing, you can find this interview and others on YouTube and Bleeding Edge, as well as some reaction videos, top tens, and some other fun progressive-oriented stuff. Meanwhile, this is Super Dave reminding you, take a chance, deviate from the norm, expand your boundaries. This is Super Dave, signing off.